the story behind S4, Aliens, and Bob Lazar. In May of 1989, people stared at their television sets, unsure of what they were hearing, as a shadowy figure calling himself Dennis dropped a bombshell. He said that the United States government was actively reverse-engineering an alien spacecraft in a mysterious facility called S-4 close to Groom Lake in Nevada. A man named Bob. Born on January 26, 1959, Robert Scott Lazar grew up in Coral Gables, Florida. From there, the family moved to New York, where Lazar got his first interest in science and engineering when he became neighbors with a rocket designer named Eugene Gluhareff. From a young age, Lazar's panache for pyrotechnics and loud things that go boom were evident. His mother recalled being startled once after hearing a loud bang outside, only to discover that Bob had installed a rocket engine on his bike. An often reprinted photo of young Bob in 1977 while he lived in Woodland Hills, California, shows him on that bike with a rocket engine by Gluhareff strapped on it. You can even find photos and videos of Lazar when he was younger testing his jet bike and later showing off his jet car. In 1980, he married Carol Strong in California and the couple later moved to Los Alamos in Vegas. While there, Lazar set up his photo processing business. Around the same time, he worked on a limited contract job for Kirk Mayer, one of the few smaller contractors who supplied personnel to the Los Alamos National Lab. The company only worked on supplying small-time personnel like fabricators, electronic technicians, and machinists. Since Lazar had some technical knowledge from studying at Pierce College, he was hired as an electronics tech by Kirk Mayer. Several people who worked alongside him at the time described Bob as a clever fix-it guy. He was regularly seen at work handling problems with computers and doing technical repairs to a point that he was listed in the Los Alamos National Lab phone book. His name showed up there with a KM next to it, signifying he was employed by Kirk Mayer. While in Los Alamos, Lazar also became somewhat of a celebrity in the small town because of experiments with his jet car. In an interview for the local newspaper that came out in 1982, he was described as a physicist. A lot of his then colleagues were surprised at this title since they knew he wasn't one, but rather just a very intelligent guy. Curiously, by 1985, the Lazars moved out of Los Alamos and into Las Vegas. Lazar then filed for bankruptcy on June 21, 1986, with his record showing he was almost $300,000 in debt. This included unpaid debts to friends and family members, including both his parents. It was also around this year when he bought a legal Reno brothel. The brothel became so profitable for Lazar, he didn't have to return to full-time employment for a while, according to one source. This would later come back to haunt him, though, as he was prosecuted for aiding and abetting a prostitution ring and sentenced to 150 hours of community service in 1990. Around June of 1985, the Lazars bought a new home in Las Vegas. By this time, his personal life didn't seem too good as Carol lived in the Vegas home while Lazar stayed in Los Alamos. The following year, on April 19, 1986, Lazar married Tracy Merck at a Vegas chapel. He was technically still married to Carol since they never divorced, 
But just days after this new marriage, on April 26th, Carol Lazar was found dead in her car at home. It was ruled a suicide from carbon monoxide poisoning, and no autopsy was ever done. Tracy and Lazar remarried again in October of 1986, but for some reason she used the name Jackie Evans this time. In December of 1988, this was said to be the time when Lazar claimed he was employed at the S-4 facility. Around March was when he took his friends, which included his wife Tracy, Gene Huff, and John Lear, the latter two being leading UFO enthusiasts and conspiracy theorists, to see the supposed UFO test flights conducted every Wednesday night at the facility. Lear reported seeing an elliptical-shaped light flying around for about seven minutes. The following Wednesday, they returned without Lear, but this time with Jim Tagliani. They filmed a moving light with a timestamp of 8.30 p.m. They returned a third time, but were discovered by guards, and then they were detained and questioned. On April 7, 1989, this was the last time Bob Lazar said he reported to work at S4. In one interview, he said he wasn't officially fired, but his clearance was simply taken away. The reason for the revocation was that they found his wife was having an affair with her flight instructor, and they were concerned this was leading to Bob becoming unpredictable. They discovered the affair because the powers-to-be had tapped Lazar's home phones. Shortly after, the couple divorced. Then the famous interview with George Knapp occurred in May of 1989. Dennis appeared, then Bob, and soon the world heard Lazar's strange UFO story. The Claims and Secrets of S4 in the 1989 interview, the shadowy Dennis told reporters in the world he was employed at a secret facility called S-4. The base was a subsidiary of Area 51, whose existence was never officially admitted by the government until 2013. S-4 was said to be located just south of the main facility, close to Groom Lake. Dennis went on to say while working there, he was given clearance to reverse engineer one of nine flying saucers. He goes on to say that one of these, which he termed as the sports model, was made using a metallic substance similar to what looks like stainless steel. When asked if he could prove all of this, Dennis said he couldn't and explained that he only has his word to back up his claims. With that, the interview ended and people were beyond confused on what to make of his statements. The second time Dennis appeared on camera, he was now ready to reveal his face. It was Bob Lazar, and he went on to say more about S-4 and other secrets the government was said to be keeping from the public. He claimed the alien vehicle he studied used Element 115 for propulsion and security. This element generated a gravity wave which allowed the craft to fly and evade visual detection because it bent the light around it. At that point, the existence of Element 115 was only theorized about and published in various publications, but it hadn't been synthesized. This unusual chemical wasn't created until 2003 by a combined team of Russian and American scientists, and it was named Moscovium. Lazar also revealed that during the onboarding process, they were given documents outlining the history of the alien contact, and it said that people have been in contact with extraterrestrial beings for 10,000 years. 
These beings were identified as gray aliens and came from the orbiting twin binary star Zeta Reticuli. His reasoning for doing the interview was that, at that point, having been restricted from the base and having his phones tapped, he feared for his safety and wanted some sort of record to be out there in case anything strange happened to him. The truth, the lies, and the questions. Of course, the first thing both detractors and UFO believers wanted to know was Bob Lazar's background. Investigative reporter George Knapp, who was behind the original interview of Lazar, was one of many who looked into his background. Lazar claimed he studied physics and electronics technology at Pacifica University back in 1978. This was followed by a master's degree in physics from MIT in possibly 1982 and a master's degree in electronics or electronics technology from Caltech in 1985. Despite a thorough search, though, no one has been able to identify a Pacifica University in California during the time period Lazar said he studied at the school. To be fair, he said it was a correspondence school, so proving to track it down and possibly its records was difficult. When it was finally traced, though, the school was closed down for supposedly selling degrees. As for MIT, researchers, including Knapp, could not find any trace of Lazar as a student at the Institute. Glenn Campbell, another researcher, also took the extra step of searching all printed material from the period Lazar said he studied there. He figured if the government expunged Lazar's records, it would be impossible to remove all printed evidence of Lazar if it was in fact out there. But this also proved fruitless. He also could not find any trace of Robert Lazar or possible misspellings of his name in the student directory between 1979 and 1990. Finally, there's Caltech. Lazar said he received a degree in electronics or electronics technology at the school. But an official for Caltech's graduate studies department said Caltech never offered those degrees, only electrical engineering. There was also no tangible trace of Lazar's existence ever being there. But despite all this, many still say that the government somehow eliminated a huge chunk of Lazar's past, including his schooling background. Several people who knew Bob from the time also offered to corroborate his story of attending these schools, stating that during the time they would often pick up Bob or drop him off at the schools he attended. They said if he was faking attending there, then he likely thought it through for decades. On the flip side, Lazar did provide possible proof of his said employment at S-4. He showed a copy of his W-2, a government-issued IRS form required for workers. On the employer section, it read, United States Department of Naval Intelligence, which is a government faction that hasn't even existed since World War II. It is now known as the Office of Naval Intelligence. For Lazar believers, it shows the truth of a cover-up and that the government is using fronts to help conceal information from the public. But speculators say it's likely he faked the documents because the numbers indicated are not valid. The Bob Lazar of 2019 For decades since his explosive story, Lazar has remained quiet. He's done interviews here and there, but nothing more, and miraculously has stuck to his story of flying saucers at S-4. But in late 2018, a Netflix documentary produced by George Knapp himself and directed by Jeremy Corbell 
revisited Bob's story. Lazar has since lived a quiet life in Michigan, running his own company, United Nuclear Scientific Equipment and Supplies. The documentary starts with Lazar messaging Corbel, the director, saying he's being raided by the FBI, even sending him a photo of an agent from behind. It's narrated by Nikki Rourke, and the story revisits Lazar's claims, including his initial interview with George Knapp. Knapp, Lazar's wife, and some people who know Lazar personally also appear in the documentary, vouching for the controversial man. The film focuses on humanizing Lazar instead of asking hard questions about his claims. Maybe it was rightly done so, as the most scrutinized part of his story wasn't his claims, but his background instead. Bits and pieces hint that maybe Lazar still has more information he hasn't shared in the last 30 years. This included some reports that he took a sample of Element 115 from out of the high-end facility. He was asked about it, but refused to officially address it in front of the cameras. Then there's the video footage that was said to be taken of flying saucers during the test flights, which was what you would expect from a tape shot in the 1980s. It's blurry, dark, and you're unsure of what you're looking at. Even Lazar admits the standard of the video is poor, so it showed nothing more than a bright light moving around in the darkness. Is Bob Lazar telling the truth all along? The answer is, we're still not sure. 30 years after he came out, some people claim that portions of his story have been confirmed. First, there's Area 51. For a long time, the government had never officially acknowledged the existence of the facility until 2013. But he wasn't the first person to claim its existence or any government secret activity in Groom Lake. Locally, the base has always been speculated and in fact, UFO enthusiasts regularly visited the area because of such rumors. It wasn't a secret, but the government just never officially acknowledged it. Second is Lazar passed several polygraph and lie detector tests. It should mean he's telling the truth, possibly. Of course, debunkers say machines can be beaten. In fact, many who sincerely believe their story is true, even if it is false, will likely pass polygraphs without any problem because they won't show any significant change in their physiological reactions, specifically fear or anxiety. Third, the mysterious element 115. The fact Lazar had knowledge of this element is hailed as the biggest proof by some that he's telling the truth, but many say the opposite. Lazar said the substance could not be synthesized on Earth because it was too heavy and it was only made from stars. But as mentioned, an unstable form was synthesized in 2003. In addition, scientists argue Moscovium cannot be made from stars regardless of the size of that star. There was some other evidence pointed to in the documentary, both by the director and Knapp, that Lazar could be telling some form of truth. For instance, the agent who did the background on Bob Lazar for his supposed employment at S4 was actually found. His name is Mike Thigpen. He refused to go on camera, but gave his permission to the director to mention that he does remember Lazar being at the facility. There's also the fact that Lazar had knowledge of EG&G, the company who was working as a contractor for the U.S. government. In June of 2019, a UFO-related leak mentions EG&G between Dr. Eric Davis and Vice Admiral Thomas R. Wilson 
and EG&G is mentioned alongside Area 51. Perhaps what's gotten people beaming that Lazar could be telling the truth was a moment in the documentary when Corbel hands over a photo of a hand scanner that was said to have been used in the facility. Lazar had described such a scanner in his interview during the 80s and many grilled him and ridiculed him for it. When Corbel dramatically gave him the photos, Lazar smiled and said, I never thought I'd see these again. The photos Corbel got were hand scanners used at nearby Area 52. The sci-fi looking thing was a form of pre-biometric access points for individuals working in the secret facility. Many saw this as vindication, exact words Corbel used in the documentary for Lazar. He must be telling the truth if he actually knew about the scanners, but a bit of searching later revealed the scanners weren't all that secret. In fact, thousands of Americans probably saw the scanner when they went to the theater to watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind back in 1977. What's more, the device has been public knowledge since 1971, a decade before Lazar's claims. Many still think Lazar is a fraud, while others vehemently point to his story as undeniable proof the government is hiding the existence of aliens from the public. The documentary itself didn't ask Lazar the hard questions, but it gave us a picture of who he could be. But where does all this leave us? Unfortunately, right back to square one, with a man telling us he worked on an alien craft from a secret government facility and a public still waiting for undeniable proof to know if he's telling the truth or not. We have new videos every Wednesday and Saturday, so if you enjoyed this one, and please subscribe and hit the notification bell. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you soon.